Go ahead and find your seats. Even though the chatting is my favorite part of the whole service. And when you get there, we'll stand for the reading of God's word. And this morning, Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It is great to see you. It's the third Sunday of Advent, but we are celebrating Christmas today before students move away for the winter, before people start to travel. So we are so glad you're here. Happy Advent and Merry Christmas. Uh, This Advent, we've been looking at four songs that we see in the Gospel of Luke, chapters one and two, four songs that are, are sung in response to the birth of Christ. So over these four Sundays of Advent, we're looking at one song each time. And in the first two songs that we've already looked at, the song of Mary and the song of Zechariah, we see the birth of Christ is anticipated. Next week, we're going to look at the, the fourth song where we see Christ's birth is celebrated. But it's this week, and the song that we just saw, we actually see that Jesus is born. And again, a spontaneous song breaks out. But this song is not the, the song of man or of, of woman, but instead it's the song of the angels sung out over the shepherds in the fields. It's the song of heaven. Now, I'll never forget the birth of my first child. I probably won't forget the others, but the first one is, is in my memory for life. Because the, the birth of your first child, it's a life-changing experience. It's it's exciting, it's uh, dramatic, it's intense, I'm excited, I'm nervous, I'm, I'm worried about all that could go wrong. Uh, it's just an exhilarating 
time. And it, it's a time where all, all time stands still. Like I'm not doing anything else as this baby is being born. My mind's not anywhere else. I'm not looking at my phone. I mean, I am locked in to the intensity of this moment. And then finally, this, this healthy little child comes bursting forth into the world. Little Joseph with his, you know, full head of hair and glasses. And he's already commenting on like the inefficiency of the healthcare industry. If you know him, I'm like, is this normal? Should he be this aware of what's going on in the economy at this age? So he's born and, and this, this moment reaches its climax. It's a, a moment where, where just nothing else matters but time stand still. The ancient Greeks had a word for this, and it's kairos. The Greeks had, had two different words for time. Chronos time was, was the chronological time. So if you said, what time is it? It's Thursday at two. That's chronos time. But kairos time is, it's time infused with meaning. It's not a specific time, but rather it's a, it's a moment in time. It's one of those moments where everything else fades into the background, where it's, where it's a memorable moment, where something is, is breaking through into our reality. That's, that's Kairos time. And the Gospel of Luke, the, or rather the Gospel of John, the author says of Jesus being born, the time came, the Kairos time came for all to be fulfilled. Kairos literally means pregnant time. And the birth of Jesus was, was the ultimate experience of this pregnant time, a time that was so important, one of the most important moments in the history of mankind. In the midst of our dark world, heaven breaks through. Unto us a child is born, the promised one, the long-awaited Savior. And it's in that moment that all heaven breaks loose. The angels descend, they sing over the shepherds at night, glory to God in the highest heaven it's a moment. It's Kairos time. And so today's message is simple. I want to do two things. I want to trace the story of Jesus' birth as it's told in the Gospel of Luke. And then I want to highlight the three things that we see spoken or sung over us from the angels. And it's the three responses that we can have towards Jesus' birth, joy, peace, and glory. And so we'll look at those three things as well. But first, remember the story. According to the text, it says that Caesar issued a decree that everyone must return to their hometowns to be counted. Now, Bethlehem was this tiny town in the south of Judea. It's a kind of town that a lot of people are from, but if you can kind of get up and, and get out from it, then you would. And so a lot of people were, were from Bethlehem, but not a lot of people still lived there. And so Joseph, his family line being from there, he and his fiance Mary, rather, right, they were still pledged to be married, not even married yet. Joseph and Mary make this 80-mile journey south from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. So think about that, 80 miles walking by foot. Mary might have been on like a donkey or a small horse or something, but that's, that's 80 miles. I mean, think that's like from here to Blue Springs. That's a long long journey. And this is not a safe journey. It's this old uh, pathway that moved through Israel that people had taken for hundreds, for thousands of years to get to Jerusalem. And so imagine Joseph and Mary in that moment. They're making this days long journey and Mary is nine months pregnant. They have no family with them, no friends, no support system. And they barely know each other. Like they've, they've just come together in the last few months. Perhaps their marriage would have been arranged. They might've known their families a little bit. And yet an angel has appeared to each of them 
explaining what was happening. And so first to Mary in Luke 1, the angel says, the Holy One will be born to you and he will be called the Son of God. To Joseph, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. To you, a child will be born. You will name him Jesus for he will save the people from their sins. And so I can imagine as they were walking this long 80-mile journey, they were rehearsing all of the Old Testament things that they had learned as children, all of the prophecies that had been spoken for hundreds of years. They could have thought of Isaiah 7 that said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Or maybe from Micah 5, Bethlehem, though you are small among, among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel. Or maybe Isaiah 16, my favorite one, in love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. And so imagine they're thinking about all these things. Could it be that they're going to be fulfilled through them? As they make this long journey, they finally arrive in Bethlehem. And as they get there, that says there's no room for them at the inn. So I don't know if you've ever had one of those days where just like everything goes wrong. Like it's all just little things one after another. Maybe an entire week where it just seems like absolutely everything is not working out. But that's kind of what's happening here for Joseph and Mary. I mean, this is absolutely the worst time to have to make this journey to Bethlehem, right? Nine months pregnant. There's no getting out of it. This is a, a decree straight from Caesar. And so they make this journey and they get down there and there's, there's no space for them at all. See, whenever people come back to Bethlehem, it's those that are, are well off and well connected. They get the rooms, but it's, it's the poor and those without family. They're the ones who have nowhere to stay. And so I can imagine Joseph being turned away at all of these different places saying to Mary, well, at least you're not in labor. And she's like, I've got bad news for you. This thing is happening. This baby is coming. Mary must have been panicked. And I, I can imagine that Joseph must have been both panicked and, and probably even a little bit embarrassed. I mean, you can imagine him saying, how am I supposed to be the father of the savior of the world? And I can't even secure a place for this birth. I mean, we're being turned away. I don't have the money. I don't have the connections. I'm starting off on a, on a terrible foot in this whole fatherhood thing. And yet this baby's coming. So they find a, an old stable they go in there, they drop their bags, and Mary begins to give birth. She cries out. She's been trying to hold it in, but the contractions are being counted in seconds and not minutes. Finally, her cries give way to the shrieks and tears of a baby boy, and Jesus is born. Joseph picks him up. I don't know if you can imagine that moment holding Jesus. Just moments after he's being born, it says that he... He wrapped him up in cloths, you know, laid him down and put it out and like turned the right side over and then the bottom up. And then he's like, no, you put the bottom up and then tuck the right side in. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to just wrap him up and just give him to Mary. So Mary's holding the child. He's done crying. He's just, just kind of happily sitting there and drifts off to sleep. It's probably in this moment that Joseph and Mary finally can, can breathe a sigh of relief after all of these months, after this whole journey, the whole birth experience not going exactly according to plan. And yet he's here. 
He's safe. Everything has come true. And so finally, they can, they can cry and they can laugh. And I just imagine them holding little Jesus and saying, this is him. This is the one who, who created the universe with the Father. This is the one who, who spun the stars into existence and who named them. This is the one who would come to earth to teach the people, to, to heal the lepers, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to go to the cross on our behalf like this is him, seven pounds. Just imagine the power of that moment. It says in verse eight, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. I love the fact that the first ones to know about the birth of Jesus were not noblemen. They were not priests or prophets or, or anybody of, of stature in Israel, but rather it's shepherds, shepherds out in the fields doing the, the night shift. The angel comes to them first out of all people. And this is essential to the Christmas story that salvation comes from the margins and salvation comes to the margins. Jesus wasn't born to a wealthy or even an upper middle class family. He was born to a poor rural family. He wasn't born in a palace or even in the temple, but he was born in an animal stable. The first to celebrate the birth weren't the holy ones of Israel, but the shepherds in the fields. And then when wise men came to deliver their gifts, they weren't the prophets and priests of Israel, but they were ones from from the Far East, from China or India, who came to bring these gifts before Jesus. It's meant to show us that all nations will come before this child king. All nations will bow before him and praise and worship and glorify him. And it's because Jesus has not been born for the insiders. He's not been born for the religious, the good ones, the people that that have got it all and got it all figured out, have hold it all together. Instead, Jesus has come for the outsiders, the ones who don't have it all, who, who can't get it together, who can't pull it off. The ones who have been far off, Jesus has come for them and all nations will come and praise him. So salvation comes from the margins to the margins. And the angel is in the field shining over these bewildered shepherds and he says, do not be afraid, I bring you good news. They will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then it says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and singing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is what we've been seeing in this Advent series that whenever God appears Praise and and worship is is the natural overflow. Anytime you encounter God as he truly is and all of his magnificence and glory and goodness, the only possible response is an overflow of praise and worship. Each year at Trinity, we've picked a certain theme, something we want to grow in, something we're praying that God would deepen in us. And for 2021, it's been worship all year long. We did a worship service or a, a series over the summer. We've been focusing on worship, and now we're, we're closing out the year with these four spontaneous worship songs. 
in Luke 1 and 2. It's because we were created for this, for worship. We're hardwired to praise what we love, to share and to tell others about what we've seen and experienced. Jesus said in John 4, a time is coming and is now come when you will worship in the spirit and in truth. For these are the kinds of worshipers the Father is seeking. God is seeking worshipers. And he's seeking worshipers because he knows that it's the best possible thing for us. He is the only one who, if we give him all of our praise, all of our life, all of our hope, he won't let us down. He is the one that we most need, the only source of our contentment and satisfaction. And so we know from the scriptures that if you are here right now, whether you've been here every Sunday all year or this is your first visit, we know that God is calling you to himself. He's inviting you even now to be a true worshiper of him. He's invited you into his presence and he longs to know you. He longs to satisfy your every need and your every desire. He's saying, cast your burdens on me because I care for you. When we experience God as he truly is, the only response is praise and worship. And so the angel announces this good news that heaven has come to earth and it means three things for us, great joy, peace on earth, and glory to God in heaven. So first it means great joy, and the angel says this child will cause great joy for all the people. We we see throughout Scripture that wherever God is, there is joy there. A joy is a posture of the heart that's connected to God. It's where burdens are lifted, where forgiveness has been granted, where new life is blooming. The Scriptures have a lot to say about joy. The Old Testament says in 1 Chronicles that strength and joy are in God's dwelling place. When Israel rebuilt their temple in Ezra 3, it says the people shouted for joy. The Psalms mention joy at least 57 times, like Psalm 16, which says, You will fill me with joy in your presence. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. A man found it, and in his joy he went and bought that field. Joy is the first emotion described after the resurrection. And joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the results of His presence in our lives. And so wherever God is, there is joy. I know if you hear that, you might be thinking, I I don't always experience joy. If you're a believer, you might be saying, "I've, I've been living this Christian life for a while and I've experienced a lot of things, but it hasn't always been consistent happiness. And that's, of course, because there's a big difference between joy and happiness. Happiness or gladness is, is the emotion. It's, it's the feeling, the positive feeling of something good and right, and, and our, our emotions match that. But joy is something so much deeper. Because throughout life, sorrow is, is a constant state as well. Living in a broken world, we are overwhelmed with grief. We are filled with, with all the negative stuff as well as the positive stuff, anger, doubt, frustration. We suffer from broken relationships. Maybe even as you're looking forward to the holidays, you're aware of brokenness in your family and people that are not speaking and need to be restored to one another. Our world is broken and so are we. And so joy has to be something far greater than than the experience or the moment of happiness, and it is. Joy, in fact, is more of a heart posture It's a posture of satisfaction in God. 
It's a spiritual state of gratitude and contentment, gratitude for what God has done in the past, contentment for what he's given us in the present, and then confidence and hope for who he is for us in the future. The Christian vision of life, it's, it's not mere happiness. It doesn't bury the pain. It doesn't seek happiness for our own sake, which might mean something bad for somebody else, but instead it's true joy. It's holding happiness and sorrow together. It's knowing that true joy doesn't come for living for our own happiness, but for the well-being of other people. Joy is a posture of the heart that can say, it is well with my soul, even when it's not well with our circumstances. And Jesus' birth, it brings great joy because it brings victory over Satan, sin, and death. Jesus' birth means that God has come for us. He has not forgotten us. It means joy for us because we don't have to prove ourselves any longer. We don't have to compare ourselves to other people. We can be secure in who we are, broken or whole, because God has called us to himself. The first word out of the angel's mouth is joy, great joy for all people. But it's actually in the next verse that we see the actual song. It says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Over and over and over, we see wherever the birth of Jesus is announced, people overflow with praise. They can't keep it in. Immediately they pour out these incredible blessings to God and they praise his name. And what they're singing first is peace. On earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's into our divided and fractured world, even into our broken and fragmented lives, that peace is announced. We know that we need peace. We know that this is broken. We know that we are, are incomplete, and so we long for this peace. And peace in the scriptures is this idea of shalom from the Old Testament, and it means wholeness or completeness or flourishing. It means perfect harmony between different parts. And so peace in the scriptures is not primarily just a, a personal or a private experience, but it's a relational concept. Peace is about peace with God and peace with one another and peace in all of society. And again, you might say, but not everything is like that. There is no peace in the world. Jesus has come 2,000 years ago, and yet our experience of the world is not peace. It's not flourishing. It's not everything in its right place. I think often of this, uh, an older pastor friend of mine has in his office a, a picture of the earth. I'm sure you've seen a, a picture of the earth from outer space where it's like perfect black background, a couple of shining stars off in the distance. And then the world is this beautifully round, just vibrant, bright picture. So you have the blue oceans, you have white clouds moving across the, the green lands. You can see sort of the brown mountain ranges and it just looks beautiful. And the reason my friend has this in his office is because he likes to point people to it and say, isn't that beautiful? The problem is that it's not real. So these pictures, they, they're not actually a single picture like taken from space, but rather they're hundreds of pictures that have been sliced together to give us this final image. It's completely photoshopped. I mean, you couldn't have the same amount of sunlight in one place as all the other places. So what they do is they take hundreds of photos from satellites and then they put all of those little slivers together to make something that looks as good as it does. It's photoshopped. 
So in the same, wor- in the same way, our, our experience of this world, we have an idealized version of it in our minds, but it doesn't really exist. We think the world is supposed to be this perfectly beautiful place, and yet our experience of it is totally different. And so at Christmas, we can remember that Jesus didn't come into this perfect, photoshopped, you know, perfectly lit, colorful earth with nothing wrong, but instead he, come, he comes to the real world. He comes where there are slivers of happiness and light and peace, but there's also a lot of darkness and brokenness. He came into the real world because it's the real world that needs salvation, that needs wholeness, that needs to be renewed. And so the angel sings, on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. But the last thing is glory. Glory to God in the highest heaven. As I've said, anytime we encounter God in all of his fullness and his beauty and his power and his mercy, we can't help but sing out. We can't help but glorify him. There's only one way that God could accomplish both of these things, peace on earth and glory to God in the highest heaven. If you think about it, we, how can we have peace on earth if we are disconnected from God? Our sin disconnects us from God. The scriptures say the penalty for our sin is death. The wages of our sin is death. Since God is perfect and holy, since he's just in his character, he can't be in the presence of evil. And so the moment we sin against him, we have to be removed from his perfect presence. And so how can it be that God would give us peace on earth and restore us to himself without canceling out or compromising his own justice and holiness? There's only one way for that to work, and it's if God sends his own son. If God the son comes down on our behalf and is is born in human form, It's only if Jesus lives a perfect life, satisfying the righteous requirement of the law for us. Not only that, Jesus goes to the cross and dies, paying the penalty for our sin. Our sin is transferred onto him so that his righteousness is transferred onto us. And not only that, but he rises again. Death could not hold him down and Jesus accomplishes victory over Satan, sin, and death. And not only that, but he gives us his very life. Eternal life through his Holy Spirit. He puts his presence within us. He unites us to himself so that we can become as he is. This is the good news of how God could give us peace on earth while also upholding his glory in the highest heaven. Jesus became as we are, fully human, so that we might become as he is, a child of God. God loved us into existence and yet in our sin, he lost us. And so the Christmas story is that in Jesus, he comes to get us back. Now it's in this Christmas story and in Jesus' birth that that heaven and earth meet. I mean, the the gloriness of of God and and the angels meeting the the ordinariness of of shepherds in the fields, of of childbirth, of, of crying and laughter and tears. It's the Christmas story that brings heaven and earth together. And when we look at this birth narrative and we see the the conditions into which Jesus arrives, we see that if he can arrive like this, then he can show up anywhere. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, an old uh, pastor, he's passed away now. 
But he wrote this, those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they've seen him in the stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. What he's saying is that if God can show up here, if he can show up like this, then he can show up anywhere. He can show up in the, the darkest places of our lives, the parts of our lives that we don't want to admit or we don't even want to, want to pray up to the Father. He can show up there. To those who feel like they are too far gone, they feel like they need to kind of clean themselves up or get it together before they come to church or before they come back to God. God says, you're not too far off. For anybody who thinks that they're too low for God to reach down to him, it's exactly where God goes looking for his people. It's just where God seems most hidden and most powerless that he can reveal himself most powerfully. And if God can show up here in the darkness of a stable, then he can show up anywhere. There was no room for him in the end. And think about that. All the, all the four-star hotels, they had no room for somebody like Jesus and for his people. This was no place for a king to be born but God in his beautiful, mysterious, exceedingly wise plan of redemption, this is the circumstances into which he wanted his son to be born. And God is not afraid to show up in unlikely and unseen and humble places. We look at the scriptures and we say, God seems to prefer it. He seems to, to like going to the, the most unexpected people in the unlikeliest places. And once we've seen him there, once we've seen him in the stable, once we've seen him out in the fields among the shepherds, once we've seen him sitting with these far-off kings, once we've seen him dining with tax collectors and forgiving prostitutes and, and healing lepers, once we've seen him doing all these things, we know that he can meet us anywhere as well. It's into the darkness that a light has dawned. From the margin, salvation has appeared. Heaven has broken through into earth. God loved us, he lost us, and in Jesus, he comes to get us back. Let's pray.